welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in for the past few weeks on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, The book of Nehemiah tells the story of uh, the people of God returning back to Jerusalem under the leadership of a man named Nehemiah and their work to rebuild the city of God, Uh, their, their work to build and establish the kingdom of God in their place and time. And we've seen over and over in this book the continuities between their calling and their work to build God's kingdom in a dark and broken world, and our own calling to build up the kingdom of God in our own lives, in our own church, and our own calling. And so this morning we are in Nehemiah chapter 4. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is um, selections from Nehemiah 4, 1 through 23. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn and burn ones at that? Tobiah the, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, And that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. 
Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Thanks, Kyle. You can be seated. This is uh, not the first time, but the most significant time so far in the book of Nehemiah that we've seen that uh, their calling to build this wall is going to run into resistance uh, from the outside. And truthfully, all of our attempts to build something meaningful uh, in this world run into resistance. All attempts to build the kingdom of God encounter the kingdom of darkness. All attempts to shed light into the world run into darkness. Ralph Ellison, uh, in his masterpiece, The Invisible Man, put it this way, The mind that has conceived a plan of living must never lose sight of the chaos against which that pattern was conceived. Anyone who designs a plan, anyone who seeks to build something good and meaningful and lasting, can't lose sight of the fact that we're, we're working to build in a world of chaos. We're working to build in a world that fights back against what we're trying to build. This means that everything worth building will be built amidst struggle. Right? Our marriages uh, don't just build themselves. Right? If you get married and think, okay, well, if we just don't focus on this, if we don't touch it, if we don't work too hard, hard on it, we will naturally grow towards intimacy and love and trust and good communication. That's not how it works. Your kids are not going to naturally grow up in the direction of selflessness, love, obedience, and worship. Right? We, we work towards raising children in a world that is oftentimes hostile to selflessness and love and goodness. Right, we set out to plant a church five years ago. And you don't just say, hey, I'm going to plant a church. And the whole world around it goes, oh, great, let's, let's have a church. And everybody comes in. Right, building something significant, you run into setbacks, you run into sin on the outside and on the inside of the church. It's hard, laborious work. The scriptures tell us in Genesis, uh, right after the fall of humanity into sin, that living as we do outside the Garden of Eden, we're going to try to uh, sow crops, we're going to try to cultivate the earth, and instead the earth's going to give us thorns, right? Instead, the earth isn't going to give us exactly what we want, but we're going to have to get our hands dirty, we're going to have to get bloodied from the thorns to cultivate something good in this world. As Robert Frost uh, famously put it in his poem, Mending, there is something that does not love a wall. And in our story today, the two things that don't love a wall are named Sanballat and Tobiah. Uh, these two men literally are joined together in their hatred of this wall. 
uh, in their commitment to seeing to it that the people of God living back in Jerusalem don't get their wall built back up, that they don't reestablish a safe and strong city for themselves. And so Sanballat, a leader of a people in Samaria, one of Israel's neighbors, taunts Israel, taunts the people in Jerusalem. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? The the mockery there seems to be, are they going to pray this thing into being? We know there's not enough of them. We know there's not a very skilled workforce. We know they're not going to have success in and of themselves. Maybe their plan is just to go to their God and their temple and make sacrifices and offer prayers. Are they going to restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Sanballat uh, here, uh, almost perfectly, it has to be intentional, uh, mimics the opening lines of Psalm 2, one of the more important psalms uh, in the book of Psalms, that starts off, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Right? Israel was aware of the fact that building the kingdom of God, establishing the justice and goodness and flourishing that God intends for the world, wasn't built in a vacuum, but it came up against the counterfeit kingdoms of this world. That as they sought to build the kingdom, that other kingdoms would see themselves threatened. And other kingdoms would rage against the kingdom. They would plot against the king and his kingdom. And that's what uh, Sanballat is doing here, mocking uh, their attempts to build the kingdom of God. The scriptures uh, urge us to look beyond the kings of this world. Right? The reason that the kings of this world rage against the kingdom of God is because there's a kingdom that works behind their kingdoms. That there's a kingdom of evil, a kingdom of darkness that manipulates and works behind the kingdoms of this world, bent as they are on power and wealth. That there's an enemy to God and his world that works through and behind the oppressive powers of this world. Sometimes in the New Testament, they're called, Paul calls them the principalities and powers that work behind the kingdoms of the world. Other places in the New Testament, these three primary enemies against God and his creation are referred to as the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil oppose God and the flourishing of his creation. The devil uh, is that personal force of evil. Not just general or abstract evil, but a personal being who hates God and hates his creation and works to undermine it at every turn, whether it be uh, is the serpent in the garden, the dragon in Revelation, the tempter and accuser in Job, or everything else in between, that there is a real and personal force that's against God and against his creation. The flesh, the flesh is that part of us that works against God and his good, right? The flesh is the reason that we can't say that evil is a problem out there, right? That evil is a a devil with horns and a pitchfork. The flesh says, no, no, there's something in me that works against my neighbor. There's something in me that works against what's best for myself in relation to God. That the problem with my marriage, the thing that we're up against, isn't just out there somewhere, external temptation but that it's my own selfishness, it's my own lust, it's my own anger. 
the flesh. And then the world is simply the biblical uh, term for corporate flesh, right? If you get a bunch of fleshly people together and they form a government, it ends up by default being one that is focused on self and gain and oppression. These governments then war against each other. These people uh, seek to get over on one another. And that's what's meant by the world. And friends, this is not a popular way in our world to think about the world, to think about what's wrong with the world. When you start to use the language of evil as being what's wrong with the world, it's, it, it's not the way people typically talk. We talk easily about pride. We talk easily about the wrong things that people do. But to say that there's a force of evil working violently against humanity and rebelliously against God, Uh, is a strange way of talking uh, in the 21st century. Essayist Lance Morrow writes for the uh, Time magazine, and he he wrote an article uh, that he then turned into a book called Evil. And this is what he writes, talking about the difference between wrongdoing and evil. He says there's a crucial difference between wrong and evil, and it's that people are implicitly in charge of the universe in which rights and wrongs are discussed. People have systems of laws to right wrongs, but evil implies a different universe, controlled by extra-human forces. Wrong is a human offense that suggests reparation is possible and deserved. Wrong is not mysterious. Evil suggests a mysterious force that may be in business for itself and may exploit human agency as part of a larger cosmic conflict between good and evil, between God and Satan. And this essay is really, I think, nails the biblical view of the world. That we do live in a world that is at war. A world in which God is working to redeem and to rescue and to create a world of goodness and love. A world that finds its life in relation to Him. But there are forces of evil that work against it. And we have to come to recognize that we are powerless. Powerless against the forces that are arrayed against us, what it calls the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right, Sandalot points that out uh, and attempts to shame the people of Israel about that. If you notice what he says over and over again, it's, who are these people? They're weak and they're small and they're frail. They will never get this wall built. And then his ally, Tobiah, uh, the king of the Ammonites, comes along and he says, if even a fox jumps on this wall, it's going to tumble down. Right, They are pointing out the weakness and frailty of the people of Israel, that they are powerless against the forces uh, that are against them. By this chapter, Israel is surrounded on all four sides by enemies that want to fight against them. And yet Nehemiah's uh, response is a prayerful, humble confidence in the face of their mocking. He begins immediately to pray. He starts in verse 4 with, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Right? He recognizes uh, his weakness and that they're despising them for their weakness. But then he calmly continues to build the wall. And I love uh, his, his statement of confidence in the end of verse 20. Our God will fight for us. Right? We are weak and we are powerless. We're sinful and frail. We might not be able to fight our enemies. But he says, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. 
This is one of the central themes of the Old Testament, was Israel's confidence that God fought on their behalf. They were always outnumbered. They were always a small and relatively weak nation. They hit their peak under David and Solomon, but even still, compared to the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians, they were a small people. And their confidence was always that God, their God, their covenant God, would fight for them, that it was their God who triumphed over their enemies, who conquered the Canaanites, who gave them their land. When they, were, when they failed in battle and were defeated, they, they, they pointed out that it was because of their own unfaithfulness to God that he did not fight for them to defeat their enemy. Their great hope was that God would fight for them and give them success. But of course, the long story of the Old Testament is the story that their enemies, Israel's enemies, were not just out there, but they were also within them, that they were sinful, they were fleshly, they were worshiping other gods, that they needed God to fight for them against even the forces within themselves that led them away. They needed Emmanuel, God with us, fighting as us, fighting for us. And it's, of course, in Christ that we see this fulfilled. It's in Christ uh, that the promise that God will fight for us finds its fullness and its fulfillment. Miroslav Volf uh, is a Croatian uh, theologian. Himself, he grew up in a battle zone, a nation torn against itself in war. And here's what he writes of the life of Jesus. He says, Jesus' public ministry was not a drama played out on an empty stage. Especially in a creation infested with sin, the proclamation and enactment of the kingdom of truth and justice is never an act of pure positing, but always and already a transgression into spaces occupied by others. And we see this throughout the Gospels, throughout the life of Jesus. We see Jesus doing battle with the spiritual forces of darkness. We see him casting out the demonic. We see him raising the dead. We see him calming the storm. We see him forgiving and including excluded sinners. Jesus' life, from the cradle to the grave and beyond, was a story of good's battle against evil, God's overcoming the forces of evil. We see it, of course, most fully uh, in his death and resurrection, right? That the cross, which seemed to be the triumph of evil over God's redemption, actually served to be the place where evil was undone and death was defeated. That at the cross of Jesus, we see a Satan finally overthrown and defeated, death defeated and undone, sin forgiven, and the liberation of the entire world. Jesus himself explains the cross in Mark 3. He says, if someone is going to plunder a house, he has to first bind the strong man, bind the owner of that house, and then he can plunder his home. And what he's saying is that on the cross, I have so defeated Satan, so defeated evil and darkness, that now the world can be redeemed and rescued. You know, the scriptures uh, in the New Testament use multiple different ways to talk about the atonement, to talk about God's victory on the cross and how that secures our forgiveness before God. Sometimes they use the, the metaphors of a courtroom, right? That's the, the, the cluster of words around justification. Right, that at the cross, our, our, the penalty, the judicial penalty of our sin is paid and we're accepted before God. Sometimes they use the language of redemption, which is to, to use the metaphor of slavery. Slaves purchased in order to be free and set free from their captors. So sometimes there's legal metaphors, sometimes there's slavery metaphors. 
But one of the Bible's other main metaphors to talk about the cross is one that theologians sometimes call Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. That on the cross, Jesus has done battle on our behalf against the forces of darkness. And as he, as he overcomes the forces of darkness on the cross and then ultimately in his resurrection, we too, in union with him, experience his victory over evil and sickness and death and sin. He triumphs over death and evil on the cross. And even today, he works to overcome evil, sin, sickness, violence. One of our own uh, confessions of faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, asks this question. It's a, it's a document that works forward through answering, asking questions and then supplying answers. And one of the questions it asks is, how is Christ a king? How does Christ work as a king? And the answer it gives is this. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling us and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. I love the language of that confession. It's not just that Jesus once and for all defeated sin, sickness, and death on the cross, bound the world, the flesh, and the devil. But he continues to do that in our world. He continues to triumph over his enemies and our enemies. Right? It is right to acknowledge that we are powerless against our enemies. Right? That's one of the beauties for those of you who've gone through a 12-step program. One of the beauties is that it starts with an admission of our powerlessness. That we are not powerful enough to change ourselves. We're not powerful enough to heal ourselves, to overcome our own darkness. But here it says Jesus is actively working to restrain and to conquer our enemies. That he ultimately wins victory. And so in him, we are not powerless. In him, we have a real and living power to overcome the forces of evil. And we are called uh, to be prepared and to engage in that fight. Look with me, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, this is one of the, the great New Testament calls to spiritual battle for the people of God. Let's read a couple of verses of it, starting in verse 10. This is at the end of Ephesians after uh, Paul's explained all that Christ has done for us. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand that evil day, having done all to stand firm. Paul's clear that it's Christ who fights for us. And we are who are called to join in his battle in this world against evil and for the building of his kingdom. Well, what does that mean for us? You know, this, is, uh, this, can, this can seem uh, like a rather otherworldly sermon, right? Spiritual battles between good and evil, God and Satan. What does that mean for us uh, when you wake up on Monday morning? Uh, what does that mean for us as we practically work to be a church together, advance our mission together, as we seek to follow Jesus together, as we seek to build families together? 
What does it mean? First, uh, it means for us that non-conflict is not an option. Uh, I would love it if we could choose a different world to live in, uh, a world of peace and wholeness, a world where there was no conflict. Uh, But we are born, each and every one of us, into a world where there is a conflict. And avoiding that conflict is not an option for us. If you look at verse 12 of Nehemiah 4, uh, the Jews who are living outside of Jerusalem come to them and they say, if you look at verse 12, at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. What they're saying is stop. Stop building the wall. Stop rebuilding Jerusalem. Let's learn to just blend in and get along. And maybe they'll leave us alone. Maybe if we don't build the city, maybe if we don't try to establish God's kingdom, if we don't try to rebuild what's been torn away from us, they'll leave us alone and we can can avoid this fight. But Nehemiah recognizes that non-combat is not an option, right? There is a fundamental dichotomy between the kingdom of God and the counterfeit kingdoms of this world. And we can't get out of it because we are, in some ways, the grounds of that conflict, right? God has set his purpose on redeeming us. The enemy wants to fight against that. And so we don't have the option of saying, I'll just sit this one out. I'll just pretend, I'll just keep my head down and hope it goes away. We have to, we're called to live with an awareness that we live in a world at conflict. You know, this is an area where I think that modern uh, American Christians badly need to learn from essentially all of the other Christians in the world. Uh, essentially throughout history and even today around the world. We don't live with a very, to us, so much of this sounds like superstition. So much of this sounds like kind of a supernatural, uh, you know, there's no way to prove it. There's no way to scientifically measure it. And so I'll speak for myself that I live most of my life as though there is not a supernatural world around me that's at battle with each other. And I think most of us do too. Most most rational, uh, postmodern Americans tend to live in that place. We are slow to look and to see the world around us for for being the world the scriptures describe. This wasn't always the case. Uh, The early church was very, very uh, at ease with talking about their lives as being a battle against darkness. Athanasius describes uh, people living in the desert and doing battle against demons, literally. Uh, as they seek to withstand temptation and grow in Christ. Martin Luther clearly saw his battle uh, in the Protestant Reformation uh, as a battle against Satan. He at times even writes an ongoing dialogue between himself and Satan. The Puritans, some of the best-selling books uh, in post-Reformation Puritan England uh, were books about spiritual warfare. One was called Precious Remedies for the Saints Against Satan's Devices. Right? If you peruse your local bookstore, you will not find many today uh, with titles like that. Uh, one multi-volume book by William Gurnall was called The, uh, the Saints in Complete Armor. It's, it's just about Ephesians 6, a whole book about it. Right? And if you go to Christians around the world today, Christians in Africa, Christians in South America, Christians in Southeast Asia, they are far more comfortable than we are with understanding that life is lived in this conflict between good and evil. You know, I am uh, typically incredibly slow to want to believe this is the case. I, some of you know, over the past probably month or so, we have just, it's been hard times uh, in our church. We have seen 
uh, with our own eyes and felt in our own lives the losses that come with living in a broken world. Some of, some of you have struggled uh, in your own marriages. Some of you have lost those that you love over the last couple of weeks. Others of you have, have wrestled in ways that, that seem to never go away with sin and addiction. And it was one of our elders who came to me and said, Dave, it seems to me like this might be spiritual warfare and we should pray. And how, how arrogant that I was just busy working at it, figuring, oh, I can figure out how to counsel these people, solve these problems, do these things. I'm so slow to go, no, no, you're right. There is warfare. There is battle. God does, the enemy doesn't want to see the church established and built up and flourishing. It was on the midst of one of these weeks uh, that I left the office and went out to try to start my car after a particularly long day of pastoral counseling. And I went to crank the engine and absolutely nothing happened. It's in those moments that even pastors say words that uh, you're glad are in the privacy of your own car. Um, I admit, I don't, I don't know anything about cars. So I got some other people to try to help me jump the car. It wouldn't jump. I called AAA. They came over with their special jumper. Uh, it still jumped and then died. And he said, no, you're going to have to get a tow truck. Another three hours waiting on a tow truck. The tow truck gets there. And as soon as the guy goes to hook the tow truck up to my truck, the tow truck breaks. Oh. And it was at that moment that I finally realized, you know what, I should pray. It's, e it's either, uh, my options are either quit my job or, or pray about this. And fortunately, uh, <laughs> Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a great guide in this. As he was confronted with attack, as he was a, a, a confronted with resistance, he simply prays. He prays to God to fight on their behalf. And that's the second thing that we want to see, that we are called to two tasks at the same time. That we are called to both the task of building the kingdom of God and praying against and opposing the kingdom of darkness. Right, I love, don't you love that, that, that passage where Nehemiah says, I said, half the people to doing the work and rebuilding the walls, and the other half held spears. And then some of the builders, they had a, held a trowel in one hand, and they had their sword strapped to their thigh. That they were called to the dual acts of building the kingdom of God. They weren't supposed to be so distracted by the threats against them that they took their eye off the ball. But there were, there were real enemies, so they had to keep their sword on. Right? They were called to two things at the same time. The Lord's Prayer directs us in this way. We pray it every single Sunday when we gather together. About half of the prayer is focused on building the kingdom of God. Lord, uh, <clears throat> may your name be, be made holy and sanctified and hallowed. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the rest of the prayer acknowledges the reality of another kingdom. Give us our daily bread. There's the chance we're not even going to have enough to eat. Keep us from temptation. Help us to, Lord, forgive us and help us to forgive others when they, when they sin against us. We're going to have to know how to forgive. Keep us from the evil one. So we pray and we work for the building of the good and we watch and we pray against the attacks of the enemy. And this leads Nehemiah to this place of humble confidence. He's not obsessed with the enemies. He's not obsessed with his enemy. I love verse 6, in the midst of all their jeering, it simply says, so we built the wall, right? They, they raged against us, they mocked us, they brought shame to us, we, eh, we built the wall, right? There is a matter-of-factness to it. We prayed, we did our part, we asked for God's protection, and then we got on about our business. 
right? There can be an unhealthy preoccupation with things like spiritual warfare and the forces of Satan and all that stuff. In the New Testament and in the Old here, there is a simple, humble confidence that comes from knowing that Christ wins the victory, that the battle's not up to us. We pray, and then we get on with our lives. We don't have to learn how to pray the right magic formula, say it just in the right way. Father, protect us from temptation. Keep us from the evil one. May your kingdom come. Because Christ has already defeated our enemies. And this is the third thing that I want us to ground ourselves in. That Christ has won the victory. It belongs to him. His enemies and our enemies cannot ultimately overtake us. He's promised us that he will build his church. That's us. And that the very gates of hell won't overcome it. That he will build us up. He will build his church. John Bunyan, in his great book, The Pilgrim's Progress, has a way of depicting this in a way that I think is just beautiful. As Pilgrim makes his way to the heavenly city, the forces of evil are described as lions on the side of the road. There are lions who are chained up and bound so that they can't get to Pilgrim. They can't get to the Pilgrims as they walk on the way to the heavenly city if they stay in the road. When people veer off to the right or to the left, the lions have enough chain uh, that they can wound that they can harm, but that there is safety in the center of the road. And this is a picture of the fact that there is safety for us in Christ. The call to us is to abide in Christ, to stay rooted in Him and grounded in Him, to find our life in His life, our protection in His shelter, to cling to Him as our life. And in that place, our life is hidden with God in Christ. It can't be attacked, it can't be snatched, it can't be wounded because Christ holds us to himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, in this world, broken as it is, we acknowledge uh, that we feel the weight. We feel the weight of the opposition, of the fact that this kingdom is opposed at every turn. We feel it in our own hearts, as our own desires for growth, our own desires for love and wholeness uh, or seem constantly frustrated. We feel it in our families when we, when we experience uh, alienation and anger, sin between us. We feel it in our church. We feel it in the world. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hide our lives in Christ, who has already defeated sin and evil and the forces of the enemy. Lord, we pray that uh, increasingly in our lives and in our city and in our world, we would see and experience and know your victory over the darkness. Help us, Lord Jesus, uh, to live with the humble boldness that comes in knowing that the battle is yours and that ultimately, Lord, you have won the battle and you will see it through uh, to final victory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.